This is episode 32 of the No Limits podcast. Welcome back. As you guys know, the podcast is brought to you by Tangle Free Waterfowl. You've heard me say, as hard as you work to pay for your gear, make sure you've got gear that doesn't fail. And after the two to three years we've been on board with Tangle Free, we have yet to have any of our gear fail. It just, it works every time we go out into the field. Tangle Free delivers gear that functions exactly as it's designed to every single time year after year after year. Don't waste your hard-earned time and money on gear that only lasts a year or two. Head over to TangleFree.com for panel blinds, layout blinds, decoys, and accessories. You've also heard me say that if you, because you are a valuable No Limits podcast subscriber, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Just enter promo code PASSION at checkout. Season's getting ready to start. You guys are getting ready to stock up. We're getting ready to put a bunch of gear on order. Think about how much you can save on bulky, expensive-to-ship items like blinds and decoys. Tanglefree.com, promo code PASSION at checkout for free shipping. Our second show sponsor is Hunter's Blend Coffee. Is your coffee hunter-friendly? Hunter Do you really know where it comes from? What about are the people that you're paying to get your coffee here, do they represent what you believe as far as your Second Amendment rights to own firearms and your right to hunt with those firearms? What if I told you there's a coffee producer that buys directly from the farmer, cuts out anti-Second Amendment, anti-hunting middlemen, supports the U.S. Sportsman's Alliance, and has a great tasting full-body cup of coffee like I am drinking right now? Hunter's Blend Coffee is that company. Go back and listen to episode 16 of the podcast. It was a great discussion talking about their direct trade model with farmers and how those farmers as well as the the consumers here in the States have benefited. Uh, while you're doing that, go over to huntersblendcoffee.com. Use the promo code NOLIMITS, all one word, at checkout and get 10% off of your order. Think about it like this. You're going to buy coffee. Why not have it delivered from a company that has your hunting and Second Amendment rights in mind and supports your right to hunt and also save 10% in the process. Great coffee, great mission, Hunter's Blend Coffee. The podcast is also brought to you by Revelation Outdoors Waterfowl Ministry. Our mission is to help spread the gospel of Christ through waterfowl hunting. You know we leverage several different mediums and delivery methods to do that, either through social media, Passion of Pursuit, our short film series that's produced by Rome and Motion Culture Media. Our favorite way is to share the way we experience Jesus in waterfalling through live presentations, either at men's events, wild game dinners, or other places where sportsmen and women gather. We have been invited to speak at events all over the country, and we absolutely love connecting with our fellow sportsmen and sportswomen and talking about how God changed our lives, not through religion, but through a personal relationship with Christ. One of the things that we are seeing an uptick in within the ministry is new chapters or new groups wanting to associate themselves with Revelation Outdoors, be it small group, men's meetings, Bible studies, that that sort of thing. And we're actually putting together a group of resources through our videos that will help help your group, your small men's group, walk through Bible studies um, as they pertain to duck hunting. So if you've seen any of our past episodes, those are going to be packaged up into easy-to-use resources to lead and follow within a small group uh, mission, a small group setting, and we are super, super excited to be releasing that. Uh, if you have an event coming up and you need a speaker, we'd love to talk to you. You can connect with us on social media or on our Revelation Outdoors website, 
revelationoutdoors.com. Okay. My guest today is attorney, Southern U.S. historian, and author Tony Turnbow. Tony is the author of a wonderful book about the seventh president of the United States, General Andrew Jackson, titled Hardened to Hickory. It's a fascinating account of the life of General Andrew Jackson before his famous victory over the British in the Battle of New Orleans, which marked the end of the War of 1812. Tony's book outlines how Jackson was transformed from a rugged frontier lawyer to American hero and Tennessee's favorite son. The book is also a story of the Natchez Trace, America's fight against continued British agitation after the Revolutionary War, Spanish threats along the Gulf Coast, Native American hostility and help, as well as spies within our own military working against Jackson the whole way. Jackson runs this crucible called the Natchez Trace Expedition, where he was marching 2,000 really boys, young, young boys, men, young men, down the Natchez Trace to defend against the Spanish along the, you know, from Mobile to Pensacola. And what happens to him along that journey is what really gave Jackson his character, redefined his mission here on earth, and gave him the nickname, old, what we know him by now, as, as Old Hickory. Uh, he runs this crucible and on the other side realizes that his real mission is defined within his own sacrifice for others rather than his own personal success. And there's a, there's a near Christ-like quality and message that certainly was not lost on me while reading. I found that there is so much to be learned from history. And the older I get, the more I come to love and appreciate history. And I cannot recommend enough that you pick up Tony's book, Hardened to Hickory, and dive into it. It is absolutely fascinating. So without any further delay, here is my guest and friend, author of the book, Hardened to Hickory, Mr. Tony Turnbow. As Napoleon focused on conquering Europe, his soldiers in the New World tropics met a stronger enemy of yellow fever and altered his plans for the American continent. After the disease wiped out thousands of Napoleon's troops encamped in the Caribbean, the French emperor lost interest in the New World. In 1803, Napoleon gave the United States a document transferring ownership of a large swath of the continent known as the Louisiana Purchase. However, it was no secret that the American military was not large enough to defend it. Spain was not expected to honor the French bargain, and Jefferson ordered 500 Tennessee militia down the Natchez Trace to enforce the transfer. Jackson had just received his appointment from the governor as a major general after he tied in the election of officers by the Tennessee militia. Jackson's friend, U.S. Congressman William Dixon, had advised Jackson that Congress would be expected to take action. As the, as the militia major general in charge of the defense of West Tennessee and closest to the anticipated scene of confrontation, Jackson assumed that political leaders would recognize him to be the military commander best suited to lead an expedition 
to Natchez. However, President Jefferson and Tennessee Governor John Sevier passed over him for more experienced professional military commanders. Jackson reached out to Secretary of War Dearborn seeking to override the governor's decision by arguing that he was the man his militia had chosen to lead the troops and the governor was known for acting out of his own selfish purposes rather than the public good. The War Department was not moved by Jackson's self-serving criticism of his superior. Jackson received only the contract to build the boats for the expedition. Undeterred, when it became clear that Spain would not send an armada to challenge the transfer and Tennessee troops returned home, Jackson next petitioned Jefferson for an appointment to serve as governor of the New Louisiana Territory. Jackson's political enemy, William Henderson, cautioned President Jefferson that Jackson was violent, disputatious, and arbitrary, compelling Jefferson to deny Jackson's advancement for the second time by appointing instead a young W.C.C. Claiborne, a fellow Nashville resident, as Louisiana governor. Jefferson also appointed General James Wilkinson as governor of the Upper Upper Louisiana Territory, the portion of the Louisiana Purchase, to the north and west of New Orleans. The third denial of Jackson's ambition, particularly the appointment of Wilkinson, stung. Jackson's biographer Robert Remini wrote that from the moment that Jackson learned that Jefferson had rejected his offer to serve as governor of Louisiana, Jackson became increasingly anti-Jefferson. Jackson set out to position himself to lead the next military expedition down the Natchez Trace, but he became so driven to lead a military campaign that his boundless and sometimes reckless ambition threatened the United States General and War Department, whose support he would need. Jackson first would have to conquer his own government before he could set his full attention to defeating the British. And that is an excerpt from Hardened to Hickory, a book by Tony Turnbow. Um, I have found that I have become more interested in history the older I got, and little nuggets of unknown history just sometimes jump out at you, uh, and I find them just incredibly interesting. And we are not only uh, thrilled to have this book review on this podcast, but we're even more thrilled to have its author, Tony Turnbow, here with us today. Tony, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Joey. How are you? Oh, man. Any closer to Easy Street, and I'd have to change my zip code, brother. <laughs> it's a it's a great day in South Louisiana. It's a little hot, but um, no, we're doing well. I, as I have said, I um, I've become more and more interested in history as I've gotten older. Start to appreciate it more in the lessons uh, that you learn through history. And as I said, every, you know, I know the history of Andrew Jackson from the Battle of New Orleans, right? The end of the War of 1812, which, well, it wasn't really the end. The end was signed in the Treaty of Ghent just a little before that, but no one got the message. And so they fought the, they fought the battle anyway, right? Um, but I have, uh, I've known that part of Andrew Jackson, but never really the part that defined him and his mission and his command. So it's just, I loved this book and I'm so glad that you're able to jump on with us and and help us review it. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. But before we jump in and start talking about the book, Hardened to Hickory, what can the readers 
take away from Jackson's struggles, both with others as well as as really himself, um, that they can apply to their own lives and gain some gain some clarity about their role in the larger story that's God that God has laid out. Um, and, and I think like Jackson did realize that he was part of something much bigger than himself. Um, what what lessons can people hope to gain from this book as we go through it? It was a fascinating study of, of a young man who grew up as an orphan in the rough American backwoods. He seemed to have everything working against him, but he was very ambitious. And at this point in his life, in this chapter of his life, he had worked all of his, all of his years to try to achieve his main goal, which to, was to become the next General George Washington to wipe the, an invading army off American soil. And he never was able to achieve it because he went about it the wrong way. And in this chapter, he was forced to choose between risking everything he had worked for his whole life, working for himself, his own personal glory, for about 2,000 young Tennessee boys who had followed in 500 miles down the Natchez Trace and Mississippi River to Natchez. And he had to make a choice. And, and the choice he made there was to risk everything he had worked for for someone else, someone who would never be able to do anything for him. And when he made that choice to sacrifice everything for someone else, it changed his life Mm. and made him the man we know as Old Hickory, the man we know as General Jackson, and the man we know as President. And so I think the lesson is everything he had tried in his life to serve himself did not work. And, but when he was willing to risk all of that for someone else, then he finally achieved the goal that he had worked for his whole life. And I think that's something that's a, it's a good lesson for all of us. Yeah, I found as I as I read, you could actually the book is so well written, and and, and the footnotes it is so well footnoted and documented. Um, it it was really amazing. But you could you could feel and see and understand his transformation as you go through, you know, the whole Burr conspiracy thing. And then you get to where he's, he's building boats and he has to split his army and have the cavalry go down the Natchez trace. And, and we're going to get into this too, but the, 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 the infantry actually gets on boats and, and goes down and, and a treacherous time. And look, all you guys that are duck hunters that have been on the river when it's full of ice, you know how dangerous it is and we're in dangerous it is. And we're in big aluminum boats. These guys were in, in wooden barges. I'm quite sure weren't quality assurance tested right before they <laughs> hit the water. Um, and it's just, as you go through and you see his challenges and how he overcomes those challenges. And then at the, at the very end, which we're going to get to, you can actually see that transformation. Um, and we're going to talk about it. My quite, my next question is how did you come? Because I had never, I had never really understood or learned the significance of the trace expedition. Um, how did you come were, were you writing something else and you just kind of stumbled across some manuscripts or some, or some things that you had not known about before? How did this whole thing come about? It's a question that goes back to my my childhood. Um, I grew up near the old Natchez Trace, uh, Mm -hmm. which was a road between Nashville, Tennessee, Natchez, Mississippi, about 450 miles. And we can get into this. uh, It was a secret military highway that Thomas Jefferson 
built for the defense of the country. I grew up just a few miles from it and heard all of the stories about it. And I had a great teacher in high school who, who brought history to life. He had a military background. And he took us out to the old trace one day and he stood us on this dirt path. And he began to tell the story of Andrew Jackson bringing all of these troops down Natchez Trace to fight the British at New Orleans. And as a young boy, I was fascinated by that. You know, mm-hmm. they camp, did they meet any Indians along the way, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But none of the Jackson biographies devoted more than a couple of paragraphs to maybe four or five pages to this part of the story. And, and it's it so was, important, right? It, it's critical in Jackson's life. It, it changed his life. It's when he became Old Hickory. And I didn't know, I didn't know why. So about eight years ago, I was serving as the the president of the Natchez Trace Parkway Association, which is the Friends Group mm-hmm. for the national park that was built to commemorate the Old Road. And we were thinking of ways to commemorate the bicentennial of the War of eighteen twelve, and we wanted to do reenactments. And we couldn't we couldn't figure out how to how to portray this part of Jackson's life because there was nothing out there. And a friend of mine in Franklin, Tennessee, where I practice law, handed me a copy of an old journal and asked me if that would help. And when I saw it, I realized that this was a journal from one of Andrew Jackson's officers from the Battle of New Orleans that had never been published. And I, like everyone else, I assumed everything about someone so controversial right. as Jackson would have been published. By right. We know it all already, right? Exactly. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And I asked him where he'd been, and he told me he'd been in a trunk for 200 years. Wow. Um, unfortunately, it didn't tell much about this period in Jackson's life, but it led me to think, well, maybe there's more out there that, that no one's uncovered. And so I used my connections, uh, people I'd, I'd known over the past 30 years working on the Natchez Trace, and it started going into archives up and down the road. And I began to find journals from officers during this period of time that, that began to tell the, the journey. I met uh, Bill Cook, who's one of the largest collectors of War of 1812 memorabilia in the country. And asked if he had anything on it. And he said, well, as, as a matter of fact, I've just turned my collection over to New Orleans, the New Orleans Historic Collection. Mm-hmm. And so he had all these documents also that had been in private hands all these years that were now available. And I would give talks up and down the Natchez Trace. And inevitably, after one of the talks, an older gentleman would come up and told me that his great, 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 great granddaddy fought with Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans. And I discovered it was, it was kind of like uh, a lot of soldiers being with uh, Washington at Valley Forge. You know, mm-hmm. after after he won, everybody thought their ancestor was there. But right. there were a few, there were a few that uh, would say, "And I've got his letters. Do you want to see them?" And after a few months, I began to collect uh, actually a, literally a tub full of documents, a plastic tub full of documents of um, letters and journals that told this chapter in Jackson's life that no one had really covered in detail. And I think it really explains a lot about Andrew Jackson, the man and, and what he did for, for this country. Yeah. Now, before we get into Jackson, the man, so you're an attorney, uh, give us some background, which I, I kind of jumped around a little bit, but give us some background on, Tony Tumbo, uh, Tony Turnbow, who, who are you? What, how did you, I mean, we just kind of heard how you, how you fell into this, this incredible story. Uh, but give us a little bit of background about you. And then we're going to talk about Jackson himself. I grew up uh, in Tennessee, a small town. Um, my family came to Tennessee in the 18, early 1800s. Um, and so I, I was familiar with the culture of that time because in, 
when I was growing up in the early 1960s, I would meet people who lived on the same farms that their great, great grandfathers had lived on. And the culture had not changed that much. Hmm. Uh, and I, I love the family stories of history. And, and I try to listen as much as possible when they would tell those stories. And so uh, I just developed this great love uh, for you know, what, what had gone on before me in, in the history of the area. And when I, I attended Vanderbilt University, I studied history. I'm actually majored in with the concentration in Southern U.S. history mm-hmm. to develop that. Uh, but I never had any idea that I would use it, uh, be able to put it to use. Uh, I practice law. Like most fun- kids in college now, they don't know if they're going to be able to use the degree they can. <laughs> right. The whole idea was to be able to go to law school and, and to make a living as a lawyer. And so I practice law in Franklin, Tennessee, which is also, also in the area where a lot of this story took place. But I continue to explore history. I continue to have an interest in history. And I, I got involved with um, the Natchez Trace Parkway Association, which is this friends group for the parkway, and, and continue to explore a lot of the history of the area. So over 30 to 35 years, I just built up this, this knowledge of all of these facts that I had pulled together and thought I should do something with them at some point because most of those are not published anywhere. Mm-hmm. And as the War of 1812 Bicentennial approached, I thought, well, maybe it's a good time to write a book about this road and how important this road was to the victory over the British and how it really was the fulfillment of, of Thomas Jefferson's vision for the, for the country. Mm-hmm. And so I began writing this, the book about the road. And then I met a lot of the tribal leaders from the Chickasaw, Choctaw, the Ch- Shawnee, the Cherokee in, our, in the creek in our area. And I learned there was another layer that really made this story richer because the, the Indian nations were much different than what I'd always been told. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered these journals, these Tennessee soldiers, and I realized that's another layer of these young boys who had never been away from home before, learning to, to be soldiers under Jackson's leadership. And that's that's another layer. And then there was Andrew Jackson, and he was everywhere. And I had no idea, I think, the influence that he had, particularly in this area at that time, um, with the, with the building of this road and his fight for the control of the U.S. Army. And then finally, I discovered that the whole meaning of this chapter, what happened in this chapter in Jackson's life was the fact that he had a rivalry and a fight with the general in charge of the U.S. Army. That's a nice way of putting it, by the way. Yeah, who was actually, <laughs> who was actually uh, a spy for our, our enemy, Spain. He was on their payroll as Agent 13. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt once described him as the most despicable character in our history. And I realized that then this is a story of the fight between the most despicable character in our history and Andrew Jackson yeah. for control of the U.S. Army and control of the future of the country. And, and what an incredible story you know, this is. So that, that really pushed me to, to write the book. Man, there are so many things that are going on and you touched on about a third of them. Um, and we're going to get into, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned native Americans because there's a passage that I'm going to read about that. Um, but there are so many moving parts and intersecting stories and, and it, it, it was just amazing to me. It, it's almost, you almost have to stop and put the book down and go, okay, so wait a minute. So you got these guys doing this, you have, a guy that's opposing 
Jackson, who's a spy for the for the Spanish. You have the British who are trying to intercede and get the Indians to fight on there. But there are so many things going on. It was it's just it was amazing to me. I mean, I literally had to put it down a couple of times and go, all right, wait, let me make sure I've got all this in the right bucket. And that's the reaction I had too when I kept finding all of these things, the earthquake, Tecumseh. And it's did all these things really happen in this short period of time? And when you're writing a nonfiction, you know, I think you know, sometimes you're really struggling to try to make it interesting. Mm-hmm. And I began to worry, well, will people believe this or not? You know, <laughs> this seems too too incredible to be true. But truth sometimes is stranger than fiction. Hence and all that, the footnotes. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, and that, just kind of an aside, I, I kind of struggled with how to tell this story because it was a, a chapter in Jackson's life that no one had really written about in detail. So I felt an obligation to to show the credibility of it, to show that it was genuine what I found. But I also worried that it, if I wrote it, the tradi- traditional history, the average reader would never read it. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine who was a history professor said, well, if you write it for history professors, most of them, most of the public will never read it. And most of the history professors will only skim it. So I decided to try to do both, to, to tell the narrative, to put the, the reader inside the story as much as I could, uh, but also to have footnotes for everything to show that most of what's there in the book, there there is a source to back it up. If I mm-hmm. say it's snowing, snowing on a certain day, it's because the, the records show that it was snowing. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk about Jackson. So back to the book. Jackson's father had died just months before his namesake, Andrew Jr., was born. The general understood what it was like to grow up without a father's support, protection, and guidance. In Jackson's formative early teen years, Revolutionary War military commanders had served as surrogate fathers to teach Jackson lessons in manhood that his own father would have taught him. They also gave him a sense of appreciation and affirmation that he needed to develop. Jackson's determination to demonstrate his skills as a military commander derived not just from the fact that military command was one of the primary ways men rose to political leadership. The Revolution Era era military had served briefly to provide Jackson a nurturing family. Jackson could empathize, empathize with these young men now separated from home, and dependent upon him. He would see to it that they would never have reason to doubt his concern. Jackson may even have surprised himself when he assured the soldiers publicly that he was at, he would act as a father to them. And that's really, you, you can tell how much Jackson loved his men and how much his men loved him. But what do we know? Give us some background on Jackson uh, his family life. He was, he, you know, he was rough and tumble frontier, loved to settle things with duels. Um, what do we know about Jackson? Because as you said, when we got started, he was going to do things his way. Um, he was very ambitious, very determined, never quit, never backed down, was always the first one, you know, headlong charging into a battle or a fight or a duel. And you see that change, but give us some background on how that developed within Jackson in his early years. Well, he, he grew up without a father. His father died shortly before he was born. And Jackson's mother, Betty, Elizabeth was her name, um, raised Jackson and, and her, his two brothers. And during the revolution, um, Jackson lost both of his brothers from fever and he lost his mother. And so 
he was an orphan at age 14 uh, on his own. Some family members took him in, but he said he never felt that he was loved or appreciated. And so you can imagine this young boy at, at a very formative time of his life, having grown up without any guidance from a father, coming into a camp of men from his neighborhood who were, who were fighting for their survival against the British and the men teaching him lessons that his father would have taught him. And I think that, that really instilled this love of the military in Jackson. It made him want to become uh, a military leader. And at that time, of course, most boys had the hero, hero of, of George Washington. And I think you can see it throughout Jackson's life that he really wanted to become the next General George Washington, to be the, the general who was the hero of the country, who mm -hmm. drove the British from American soil. And, and of course, obviously, we know he got his, he got his wish. He became the next General George Washington, but he had a long struggle to get there. And he grew up as a, as an orphan where most people didn't live to be beyond 20, 21 years old on, on the rough frontier, but he was determined to succeed. He was determined to survive. And it was said he, he struggled as a young boy. You can see probably all the, the consequences of, of his family problems that sometimes when he spoke, um, his mouth would foam because he couldn't quite get the words out. He, mm -hmm. he had this inherent anger. And he had a rough uh, time as a, as a teenager. Uh, it was, had, some, had some wild shenanigans that uh, had been recorded. But because he was ambitious, he turned his attention to practicing law, making money. And you know, even then, it took him a while to knock off the rough edges as much as possible. And, and it wasn't really, I think, till he met Rachel his wife, that uh, he, he became more of a, the, the tamer Jackson that we know. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she really did make a difference in his life. But I think all of this stayed with him uh, the rest of his life. He, he appreciated what these, these military leaders had done for him. I think he wanted to be in the same position to do the same thing for other young soldiers. And, and during this chapter, you know, he, he got that opportunity. Some of these boys he took on the Natchez expedition were only 12 years old. Uh, that young, drummers could be as young as 12. Mm. Many of them were 14, 16 years old, early 20s. And he promised before he left Nashville that he would be as a father to them. He would protect them. And you know, as you read the book, you can see that promise was challenged and he had to make a choice mm -hmm. whether to let these boys die or save himself. Right. Um, and, and so I think all of these things helped make up the man that Andrew Jackson became. It, it instilled in him an appreciation for the average American citizen of which he felt he was a part. Uh, probably, a, not if not a hatred, a dislike for uh, people who looked down on him because they were in a better position, they had more money, or they were uh, more socially connected, and certainly people in government who he didn't think looked out for the, the common man. Right. You, you can see how, how all these things that affected his presidency really began to develop when he was a young boy. Uh, but he, so, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, in speaking of that, I, I've got a passage um, that I'm going to read um, in the book about what happened when he was a young boy that may help define some of his sincere hatred for the British. Um, again, from the book, if Tennesseans needed a reminder of the British Empire's abuse of authority against its former subjects, Andrew Jackson served as their icon. A scar on the Tennessee militia major general's head 
permanently recorded a British military officer's abuse of power against a then 14-year-old boy who was thrown into a makeshift prison with criminals and nearly starved. The young Jackson's only offense was his refusal to stoop to shine a British officer's boot while the officer ransacked his cousin's home in the presence of his cousin's defenseless wife and small children. Worse, to a British soldier, the American Jackson demanded his rights. The boy instinctively raised his hand to defend against the answer of a British sword as it struck both his hand and head. Jackson did not back down when challenged by overwhelming power. If anything, standing up for his own rights to to an officer of the British crown and surviving, steeled the young Revolutionary War messenger boy for greater challenges. It confirmed for Jackson at an early age his own sense of courage based upon strong-headed principles. It also revealed a common-sense intuition that Jackson would further develop into survival skills as a teenage orphan in the rough American backwoods. That's the part you were just talking about. Yeah. Andrew Jackson would never need medals on his uniform to demonstrate his bravery. The scar on his head bore an indelible witness to his courage. Jackson had smoothed some of the rough edges of his bootstrap frontier-like childhood and learned some of the social graces and political skills needed to succeed in a world led by gentry. However, his boundless boundless ambition often still exceeded his experience and wisdom. Cautious military professionals, both British and American, who considered Jackson's impulsive and unorthodox actions too reckless, underestimated him to their own peril. So... That uh, that was just a bit of the history of Jackson that you just described. It's amazing. Yeah, and I, I didn't realize uh, the significance of the scar mm-hmm. until I really got into this, that that is the first thing most people would have noticed when they saw Andrew Jackson was this result of him standing up for his rights as a young boy against the British crown. Um, it was something very few other boys would have done, but it foreshadowed the, the kind of man that Andrew Jackson would become. Um, there's a, another quote that I have in the book about a young boy who wrestled Jackson. And he said, I could throw him three times out of four, but he never would stay throwed. That was mm-hmm. the quote. He never would <laughs> give up. And that's, that's the story of Jackson. And I think that's one of the takeaways from this, that even when you think you've lost everything, the fact that he would refuse to give up made the difference. Right. Now, here's here's what you wrote. I, I love this this part. Um, you were writing you were writing about his ambitions. No one foresaw that when the smoke of cannon fire had eventually cleared, large numbers of the American populace would view Andrew Jackson as the general who had conquered the conquerors of the conquerors of Europe. Jackson had worked for years to prepare himself to become the next General George Washington to drive the British Army from American soil. The volunteer major general naively assumed that he could prepare his citizen troops to encounter the professional British Army with little more than 10 days additional training. That takes a bit of balls. Yeah, (laughs) He was he was ambitious, but his his ambitions sometimes uh, put his men at risk and himself at risk, and and you can see how his ambition he sometimes got ahead of his skis, as we say today. Uh, the fact that he really wanted to accomplish his goals so quickly, and he never doubted himself, he never doubted his mission or his ability to uh, to mount an army to do whatever it was he wanted to do. He, he thought the politicians were the true enemies who just stood in his way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think 
in the end, uh, others agreed. Uh, there's a quote at the front of my book from his, who was the man who was his aide de camp, Thomas Hart Benton. When he presented Jackson's sword to Congress, he used that part of that quote and he said, he conquered the conquerors of the conquerors of Europe, but he had to conquer his own government first. And he did it. And that for him was the most difficult of the two. Mm. And that's this chapter when he first has to figure out his way to get these other generals and the bureaucrats out of his way so that he can take on the British. And you see him making mistakes along the way as he does that. Yeah. Now, the the other thing I love about the book is it's not just about Jackson. Um, It's also kind of a history of the Natchez Trace itself. So uh, we're going to talk about that real quick. Back to the book. The lean federal government was not in the business of road building. Politicians strictly construed Article One, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution that permits the federal government to build roads to transport mail as the only authority for federal roads. Secretary Pickering's request in the 1790s that the U.S. government improve a small mail route between Nashville and Natchez had been ignored. However, international conflicts had changed the landscape by the time of Jefferson's election. Napoleon and other European powers threatened a greater military presence along the U.S. along the Gulf Coast. The U.S. needed soldiers to defend the coast, and in an area of small standing army, it needed to encourage settlers to move southwest where they could provide militias. So they really needed people to move to protect the country, not just expand the country, right? Right. So. Secretary of War Henry Dearborn confided, the president, Jefferson, is extremely anxious for the increase in the population on our southwestern frontier and will give every encouragement in his power to so important an object. Jefferson used mail delivery as the pretense for improving the Natchez Trace as a wagon road. But the new road known officially as the Columbian Highway would be built along the Natchez Trace to permit the hauling of supplies for troops and a a future immigration route for settlers. In part, because the true purpose of the road was military, Jefferson tasked the U.S. Army to build it. So you have this Indian trail, or or wagon trail, more or less, right? Oh, it's an Indian, a bridle path. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was was a dangerous route. And so we make a deal, as you write in the book, and again, I'm reading just really just sections of this book to give us some, some flavor, but... They make a deal with Native Americans that, yeah, we're going to develop this for mail only, right? This is not mm-hmm. to move troops. It's not to move supplies. Um, and we quickly backtrack on that promise. Um, but get, give us the the importance of the trace and just kind of a history of that. Because as we get into, I mean, there's so many things that are going on with that. Securing the Southern Coast, the Louisiana Purchase, You've got the Spanish that are trying to take Mobile and Pensacola, and there's just so many things that the Natchez Trace is just the the lifeline to all of these different stories. Yeah, when Jefferson looked at the map of the U.S., uh, he came to the same conclusion a lot of military men did uh, at the same time. What's right through the center of the country is the, the mighty Mississippi River, and at the time when they couldn't foresee any transportation other than shipping, Jefferson said all of the future commerce of the country will go right down the Mississippi River, right to what where New Orleans is. And he said there's one spot on the globe that will determine the future of this continent, and that's New Orleans. We have to be able to control New Orleans. And that drove Jefferson to make a lot of the decisions he made. Um, even the Lewis and Clark expedition, you know, part of 
that really hinged on Jefferson's ability to be able to control New Orleans. Uh, and it's kind of one of the overlooked um, important facts of, of, of the time to understand the early history of the country was that we had to be able to move soldiers to the expected points of action. You know, we had the military had been downsized after the Revolutionary War. The country primarily relied upon a militia system uh, where men in the community would show up on a moment's notice, bring their own arms and provisions, and, and defend their communities. But most of the settlers lived at that time, early 1800s, from Nashville northeast. Mm-hmm. And south of there was the Chickasaw Nation, the Choctaw Nation, and then a few American settlers along the Gulf Coast. If we were attacked on the Gulf Coast, everyone understood there was no way to get the soldiers we needed down to the Gulf Coast to defend it. And so Jefferson realized he had to figure out a way to uh, create a wagon highway to, to move the provisions that soldiers would need to survive. But he also needed to open the area up to get settlers down uh, into that area where they could mount a rapid defense if they have to. Mm-hmm. And so he built this this wagon highway, which the government was not in the business of building highways at the time, really as a secret military highway to be able to move troops. And there were other highways eventually built across the country for the same purpose. Even the Lewis and Clark expedition was a, a secret military mission to find a military route to the Pacific coast so that they could move troops. It was all part of a a larger plan that, that Jefferson had. Mm. And so it's, uh, it's I one feel of the, like not a lot of people know that. Yeah. It's, like, it's oh, really we're just exploring. Mm. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. They were exploring for military purposes. Uh, right. But, but it's all part of Jefferson's plan. And now, you know, 200 plus years, we can look back and it, it makes sense that we were, we were going to become this continental nation. But it, in Jackson's day, in Jefferson's day, it was all up for grabs. There were uh, Spain, Britain, uh, even Russia, they were all contending for control of the continent. The Russians, they, even then, all, right? Yeah, even, even then. Um, like, this isn't anything new today, Russians meddling. Yeah, so history repeats itself. <laughs> That's right. Um, but even in the Indian nations as well, you know, this had been pr- early on a, a, an Indian trail. The Chickasaw called it their peace road. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the Indians themselves battled each other for control of this area. So... I sometimes describe the, the continent at that time as a giant chessboard. And there are lots mm. of players shocking for position and trying to use other players to for their advantage. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what's, what's going on. You know, you talk about so many moving parts. And one of the things I realized with this is that's life. You know, life is complicated. Mm-hmm. And the problem we have with a lot of the, the telling of history is that the historian has to boil the, the events down to some theme to tell a story that people can understand. But in doing that, a lot of those other layers get left out. Mm-hmm. And so they, you may see someone as Jackson through only one, one lens and that's not reality. You know, he was a very complex man. He lived in a complex time. And I think it's a, it's a, a clear understanding of history to try to figure out all of these things that were going on at the same time, especially when we're judging people for the decisions that they made. Right. And one of the things that you mentioned in, in the book is, you know, the Revolutionary War, we secured, at least we thought we secured at the time, our independence from Britain. Um, but the British didn't go away. Uh, you know, it's it's they weren't just going to turn this thing loose without a fight. As a matter of fact, uh, back to the book, the year 1812 was, an, was a normal was not a normal time. War fever stirred Tennesseans from hibernation. 
for five years, Americans had rallied at British challenges to United States independence that they naively assumed had been established at the end of the last war. A war of revolution did not necessarily result in acknowledged independence. In 1812, Britain still commanded the most powerful military in the world. Across the Atlantic Ocean, the United States experiment in a, Democra in a democratic republic was struggling, and the fledgling nation stood on the brink of financial ruin. Commanders of its small standing army mainly were men either too young to have experienced war or those too old to be effective on the battlefield. Military leaders often were appointed based solely upon family and political connections among the elite rather than military skill. If Britain still viewed the American continent through its lens of empire, or Americans as their colonists, there seemed to be little the U.S. could do to challenge that perception. In addition to dominating the seas, the British still controlled Canadian territory to the south, to the north of their former colonies in America. If the British could establish a foothold on the Gulf Coast and gain control of traffic on the Mississippi River, most of the American continent might again fall under their dominance. The triumphant, the triumphant victory of the revolution was becoming a distant memory for many Americans. So even though we had won the Revolutionary War, our independence was still not secured. Yeah, the British still thought of us as colonists. And that's why they began, they felt free to, to impress or take our soldiers on the high seas and force them to work as, as British sailors, which which everyone took as a, an insult. Yeah, as a Navy man myself, I take that as a supreme insult. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and the British still had a presence on, on the American soil. So you mentioned the, you know, the fight at, at New Orleans took place after the treaty had been signed, but it had not been ratified yet. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that Jackson actually defended New Orleans because the British were the ones who invaded. And the plans that the British had from that period was once they established a foothold in New Orleans, they would go right up uh, the, the Natchez Trace, right up through the Mississippi Valley, mm -hmm. and try to take Tennessee and Virginia and peel it away from the colonies. Uh, so their plan was to retake uh, the U.S. And it, it was a very treacherous time for the country because the people who had fought the revolution were either old or, uh, and, and the memories of that were beginning to fade. Things were not going well in the U.S. The economy was a shambles. The Articles of Confederation had not gone well. The Constitution was brand new. And, and no one really knew what to do. If we went to war, would the federal government be the, the primary uh, government that would mount a defense or would it be the states? No, no one quite knew what to do. And could they count on the states to rally under the federal, under, uh, right? I mean, there was still a question yeah. of whether these settlers would even fight. Yeah. Or, or would they follow a, a U.S. general? Mm -hmm. could, the, could the United States order American soldiers or soldiers from the state to go beyond the state borders? They had that question in, in New York and they hesitated and there was a disaster up there. So everything was up for grabs, and and I think that makes Jackson's decisions in this even more critical, right? For what happened for the future of the country, right? Now you mentioned the influence or the importance of Native Native American Indians. Uh, back to the book, for Tennessee settlers, insults to national pride were overshadowed by justifiable fear that the British were encouraging American Indians to rise and destroy Western settlements. European enemies had often found it more effective to work through Indian proxies than to send their own invading forces across the Atlantic. 
Two decades earlier, Tennesseans had supported the U.S. Army's defense of the Northwest Territory against northern tribes, only to spy British officers spurring Indians on from the rear. And it was no secret that Spain had once supplied weapons to southern Indians from Pensacola and Mobile to create proxy soldiers against American settlers. Now, rumors spread that the British were doing the same through their Spanish allies along the Gulf Coast. Um, talk, talk about the, the importance of the influence, the major influence uh, that Indians, and especially with, with Tecumseh, um, had in this part of the story. Most of the histories I read, um, I think, got a lot of the early American Indian history wrong because they seem to portray it as cowboy versus Indian, white man versus Indian. And it's really demeaning to the Indian culture because they weren't all monolithic. They, they had their own individual cultures, their individual nations. Mm -hmm. They traded with each other and with the settlers. They fought with each other. And they tried to use the American settlers to leverage position against each other. So they had their own individual uh, nations. They were sovereign, even though they were the United States declared that it owned the land under under their Indian nations. And as settlers moved out into the Ohio Valley area, they they would just take over Indian land and they pushed the Shawnee out of their homeland. So the Shawnee had to live in other Indians' nations. Uh, you know, as, as almost third world citizens, and they were impoverished and had to ask other chiefs, you know, for everything that they had, which is very insulting to to the, the Shawnee Nation. Tecumseh realized that um, if his nation would never be able to oppose these the settlers coming in, there was just too much of a powerful force. But he looked to the southeast, where the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creek had not yet lost their their power over their own lands. And he thought that he, if he could somehow pull them together to mount, to create a confederation to mount a defense, that they would then be able to push the American settlers back across the, the, the ocean where they came from to leave the American continent for the, the Indians, which he said the Great Spirit had created this continent for the red men mm -hmm. in Europe for the white men. And, and Tecumseh was a, a visionary. He saw what was happening and he was a very impressive and, and powerful leader and, and, he came down into the Southeast in, uh, in 1811 and met with the Indian nations, trying to encourage them to join him in going to war against the settlers. And so for the, the people who had come into Tennessee or Kentucky and Ohio, they lived with the threat of Indian attack every day. Uh, it, it was a real threat for them. And that's something else we sometimes miss in the interpretation. Right. That Andrew Jackson was here in the, the literal southwestern edge of the contiguous United States. He was the general in charge of protecting those settlers. If, if people survived through the night, it depended on whether the decisions that Andrew Jackson made. So he had to live with that. And that changed his perception as, as the way he saw it too. So the question was whether the, the British could use the, the American Indians in this area to present a greater threat to the Americans by encouraging the Indians just to come in and wipe out settlements. If they did, there was no way the United States would, would ever survive in this area. The problem Tecumseh ran into was that the, the Chickasaw and the Choctaw and some of the Creek leaders had already uh, developed their friendships, their relationships with the settlers. They were already profiting from that. They saw that as their future, and they rejected a lot of his overtures. It was just a small group of the Creek who, who accepted uh, his proposal to join him, and they, they were the ones who created 
the attacks on the settlers that that actually helped spur uh, the push toward war in 1812. But yeah. it it was interesting, especially because of the discussions of Jackson and the Indians lately, uh, that it was during this period that Jackson actually worked with the Indian nations in the southeast. They were partners, and during this chapter in Jackson's life, when he gets into trouble uh, because of his ambitions and his fight with Wilkinson and his men are looking at potential starvation, it's the Indians who come to the rescue mm-hmm. and, and feed Jackson's soldiers. And the, the Indians actually help make uh, Andrew Jackson Old Hickory. And that, that part took place on their march back, correct? Right. That's okay. correct. Yeah. Up the, up the Natchez race. Yeah. And, and so when I'm, uh, you mentioned Wilkinson and we haven't talked about him yet, but this guy, <laughs> I, 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 I'd look at like really shrewd, um, calculating politicians today. And I just, I don't think they've got anything on general James Wilkinson from the book. However, unknown to the even more politically inexperienced Andrew Jackson on December 10th, 1812, his own storm clouds were forming. Jackson did not appreciate the challenge he faced from his nemesis, U.S. Army General James Wilkinson, who commanded American forces on the Gulf Coast. Jackson had long suspected that Wilkinson was a spy for an enemy power, but he did not appreciate Wilkinson's unparalleled powers of deception. Jackson never perceived the levels to which Wilkinson would stop to destroy him. Nevertheless, anticipating that the fight with Wilkinson would become more than political, Jackson prepared for the encounter by planning to settle any unresolvable disputes of honor as he had with other enemies by packing his dueling pistols. (laughs) Wilkinson, (laughs) Wilkinson would set the fight with Jackson, however, on the field of federal bureaucracy, one that Wilkinson had spent a lifetime mastering. Wilkinson's blind side from within the United States Army transformed the Tennessee Volunteers' upcoming winter march into one of Andrew Jackson's greatest life crucibles, one that would have crushed almost anyone else. The unexpected challenges Jackson would face and overcome on the Natchez Trace would forge the backwoods duelist into a tested general and a new man, the man who would return from the Natchez expedition as Old Hickory. That was awesome. Yeah, Wilkinson, um, well, as Teddy Roosevelt said, you know, we've never seen anyone like him in our history. His, his powers of uh, deception were incredible. One historian referred to him as the general who never lost a battle, uh, who never won a battle, and who never lost a court-martial. Mm. Uh, he was court-martialed several times uh, for treason, but they never could quite prove it. He was the, the J. Edgar Hoover of his day. He had intelligence everywhere. And whenever someone brought in evidence to show his treason, he would totally destroy the character of that witness and, and survive. Um, he did survive because Jefferson thought that, that Wilkinson was the man he needed to protect New Orleans. No one else could do it. And so he would, he would not allow Wilkinson to be, uh, to be prosecuted. Which How, just let me ask you something. I'm sorry. Yeah. How did Jefferson come to, and maybe, maybe you've got some insight on this that I missed in the book, but as, as foreseeing as Jefferson could be, uh, you mentioned the, the Lewis and Clark expedition. He knew that we had to find ways to move troops and secure our coasts and everything else quickly, but he didn't see that a general who had never won a major battle 
would be, and I guess maybe Jackson really hadn't either, other than, uh, you know, maybe fighting some Indians on the frontier. Mm-hmm. But how how did Jefferson think that Wilkinson was the best choice to to secure New Orleans? Because he was the most familiar with it. Wilkinson had been in that area for several years. He said he walked every foot of the area, making maps of the best locations for the military routes, the best for the fence. So he, he was the most knowledgeable mm-hmm. in the area. And by that point, Wilkinson had such a command uh, over the military and, and the, the bureaucrats in the military that there was no one else who could who could uh, oppose him. And Jefferson really feared that if, uh, if Wilkinson turned on him, that Wilkinson would use the army to, to depose him. Mm. And during the Burr conspiracy that I write about in the book, that's actually one of the things that, that Jefferson thought was going on, that, that Wilkinson and Burr were working together to create a rebellion against the U.S. that would lead to Jefferson's assassination. Mm. So can, he feared it. Can you, can you talk about that? Because that's one of the things that um, – I didn't, man, there's so much stuff in this book, Tony, we could talk yeah. for about six hours on it, but can you <laughs> go into a little bit more about the Burr conspiracy and how that fit into this whole story? Yeah, it took place uh, at the time when when Jackson is trying to destroy Wilkinson. He's trying to prove to everyone that Wilkinson's not fit for duty. He's a spy. And he doesn't appreciate Wilkinson's ability to use his talents to uh, in deception. And this is before the expedition people. started. This, this is, is before- yeah, yeah, it's about five years before, and it okay. really brings it to a, this fight, this rivalry to a head. And Wilkinson decides to use Aaron Burr. He's just shot uh, Hamilton. His political career has ended in the East, but he's still popular in the West, which is where Tennessee was at the time, and persuaded him that he could come into this area and uh, raise a lot of support uh, for to, to pull the, the Western states away from the U.S., form a a new independent republic, mm. and then he could become emperor of this new republic. He was never going to become president now after killing Hamilton, but he could still become the leader of a country if he just pulled the Western states away. And so he used he used Burr as a pawn, in part to get to to, to get to Jackson. So Burr showed up in Jackson's doorstep. He began to manipulate him into getting him to to use the Tennessee soldiers to march south to maybe secure the Florida Peninsula, maybe to secure Texas and Santa Fe, whatever it was, he told Jackson that he had Jefferson's support for all of this, which is all a lie. Mm-hmm. And and Jackson bought into it. And once he was It's once just he was what he wanted in, to hear, right? Yeah, exactly what he wanted <laughs> to hear. This is your way to become the next General George Washington, to, to take your soldiers down and push these, these Europeans off our soil. And Wilkinson was so good at it, he knew exactly what, what Jackson wanted. And he used that against him. And so he pulled him into this, this scheme uh, where once word of it spread, Wilkinson turned on Burr and sent evidence of this to, to Jefferson. And, and Jefferson then had Burr prosecuted for treason, probably one of the first celebrity trials of our time. But Jackson was implicated in it because he had signed documents uh, to build boats for this expedition. Mm-hmm. And Winfield Scott, who was there at the, at the trial, said that it was only Thomas Jefferson's influence that kept Wilkinson from being prosecuted for treason because one of the one of the uh, grand jurors discovered that Wilkinson and Burr had communicated by code and he broke the code and discovered that Wilkinson had turned over the evidence implicating Burr 
but he withheld the evidence implicating himself, and there was certainly evidence there. And so Winfield Scott concluded that uh, from watching the trial, he said that serving under Wilkinson would give an officer all the honor of a man marrying a prostitute. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was an yeah. awesome part of the book. <laughs> yeah, and, and he also said if he was called into battle to serve under Wilkinson, he would carry two pistols, one for the uh, one for the enemy and one for Wilkinson. Yeah. And so that's that's critical in this time when when Jackson understands it, it wasn't really Burr that pulled him into this. It was really Wilkinson trying to destroy him. But in this chapter of his life, Wilkinson, again, undermines all of Jackson's efforts to become the next U.S. general by having these orders changed to say that this general is to serve under Wilkinson. Mm. And that's what really sets up this fight that culminates in this book. Yeah. And so everything that we've talked about so far is really happened before the stuff that I really want to talk to you about. I mean, this is just setting up the expedition. So Jackson has his Tennessee militia. A lot of these are, are young kids, right? And yeah. he decides that he's going to march. What I, what I want you to do, if you can, because I'm, I'm not going to interrupt you reading uh, with, with pulling parts from the book, if you can encompass... Um, as best as you can and, and be as descriptive as you want, but the, the river trace or, or the, the river expedition and the trace expedition, how they, how the, his two forces came back together in Vicksburg and what he found waiting for him there, because we're leading up to Jackson's really his, his transformation, um, yeah. everything that Wilkinson did to him along the way. Um, I think Washington cantonment was probably one of the most disgraceful things that I've written or that I've read. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you can take us through that kind of that expedition and how Jackson arrives at his transformation, um, I, I think that would be great. Okay. Well, Jackson comes up with a secret plan and he really doesn't have authority to do this, but he, he decides that he will treat Wilkinson as the enemy that he is. Wilkinson is, is camped down in uh, Baton Rouge, just North of New Orleans. And when, when Jackson goes down to the Gulf Coast, rather than taking the soldiers along the Mississippi River, as he's generally thought that he will have to do on boats, Jackson raises a secret, in, uh, a secret regiment of cavalry, kind of the tank unit mm -hmm. of their day, very mobile, powerful force. And he decides that he will send this secret unit down the Natchez Trace, and they'll approach Wilkinson's camp from two sides, and they'll overtake Wilkinson. And then go on down and Jackson will take Mobile and Pensacola away from the, the Europeans. And so the, the men are going to take two separate routes. The problem he's got are logistical. Number one, this is winter. And most soldiers at this time shelter in the forts during winter. It's not a, not a good time to march. It's not a healthy time to march. The men are more likely to get sick. And at that time, all of the, all of the, the scientists said you don't want to travel on the Mississippi River after the middle of December because you have ice flows to deal with. Those will, will sink a boat in a very short period of time. Uh, but Jackson had no choice. He had to get his men down south to New Orleans. And so he set off from Nashville on 33 flatboats uh, on the Cumberland up to the Ohio down the Mississippi River with 1,400 infantry. And he had to worry about the ice flows. And he was too late. And when they got to the Ohio, they, it, the ice was flowing that year. Mm -hmm. and, and they were almost sunk. Uh, but he somehow managed to get through that. And most of these men had never commanded boats uh, on the river. Uh, he got through that. Uh, he suffered problems with provisions because apparently Wilkinson had used 
the contractors to his own advantage to um, not properly give Jackson the food that he needed. Um, they do survive this this river journey heading down uh, on the Natchez Trace. Only only one of the boats was sunk because they have to deal with trees growing up out of the rivers. They're called sawyers sometimes just below the surface that'll snag a boat and sink it. They also had to deal with the fact that there was this massive earthquake, the New Madrid earthquake, just two years prior yeah. that it changed the course of the river, created new islands that no one knew anything about. So the river traffic was very treacherous. And he did not have the time to build the kinds of boats that he needed. He was only able to buy uh, lesser quality boats that would not survive. So he had to worry about that. And then the men going down the Natchez Trace had to, had to worry about the fact that they were traveling through the Indian nations, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw. And they had no way of transporting um, during the winter, even though it was a wagon highway, the, the winter road surface would not allow wagons to travel. So they had to carry their provisions on uh, pack horses. And they could only carry enough just to cross the Tennessee River into the Chickasaw Nation. And there they were supposed to have provisions laid out at the ends along the Natchez Trace. And when they crossed the Tennessee River, they discovered that the provisions weren't there. Either they never were provided or someone had taken them. And Colonel Coffey, who was leading the, the cavalry, realized that the Indians were very apprehensive and he didn't know why. And finally, he talked with one of the Indian leaders and he said, well, we were told that you were coming through. We were given the intelligence that they were supposed to know about. And we were told that when you came through, you would assassinate our leaders and take everything from us you wanted. So someone had prompted or pushed the Indians to attack hmm. this other cavalry unit. And, and Coffey said, who told you that? And he said, it was a white gentleman, probably someone from, from Wilkinson. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the struggles that Wilkinson figured out. Jackson was coming down with these soldiers he had to figure out a way to stop him because Wilkinson knew if Jackson ever got to New Orleans, Jackson would just take over, which he would have. Mm -hmm. And so he had to figure out some way of stopping him. And he finally, when none of that worked, he tricked him. And he said, and he knew that one one enemy that Andrew Jackson truly feared was, was fever. Mm -hmm. It had taken his father, his mother, his brothers. He saw that it could wipe out a unit of soldiers in a short period of time. And Wilkinson told Jackson that if he came all the way to New Orleans, that fever was raging, it would wipe his troops out. There was not enough provisions for them. And he gave them, held out a carrot. And he said, if you'll stop at Natchez, about 200 miles short, you'll find this fine federal fort there, Cantonment, Washington, that will actually serve as a, as a staging area for you then to go on down to the Gulf Coast and take uh, Mobile and Pensacola. So he, Cola. So he, he held out a carrot to Jackson because he knew that's what Jackson really wanted. And Jackson had to decide whether he would then disobey the orders to go all the way to New Orleans uh, or obey Wilkinson. And Jackson fell for the trick. He stopped short there at Natchez. And when he marched his men out to this, this cantonment, Washington, he, he discovered that rather than this fine fort that would be a staging area, it was actually a fort designed as a trap that would weaken Jackson's men. It was an area that would make them sick cause them to begin to die. And Jackson would be stuck there uh, in this area, 500 miles from home. And once he was there, he would realize that Wilkinson controlled all the ammunition, all the, uh, all the rifles, all the food, even the medicines to keep the men alive. Jackson would have to beg his enemy Wilkinson for every bit of that just to keep his men alive. And so Wilkinson had baited the trap with, with promises of food and, and with um, pay. But when Jackson got there, he realized that he was stuck in the trap and there was really no way out.
So he actually put him in a position to experience the one thing that he was the most afraid of, and that's fever, right? Right, right. And Wilkinson was was actually willing to let soldiers die to keep Jackson from New Orleans. Yes, and he had done it before. He did the same thing to Matt Anthony Wayne. When Wayne was given the position that Wilkinson really wanted, he began undermining him. And there was one occasion when, when Wayne very similarly had his soldiers 500 miles from provisions. The provisions started drying up and the men started getting sick and started dying. And Wilkinson, who had been trained as a physician, wrote that he had never seen anything like it in his life, how quickly these, these soldiers would, would get sick from each other and begin to die. And he learned from that, and he used the same trick against Jackson later on. Uh, he had also given information to the Spanish that led to the death of American soldiers under his command uh, in order to further the Spanish interest. And he even gave uh, information to the Spanish about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And with that, the Spanish came within 60 miles of capturing Lewis and Clark. Hmm. This is uh, something that Jackson wrote on March 13th of 1813 about Cantonment, Washington. To be without funds, medicine, and a number sick is an unpleasant situation. We are here without any orders or advices from any quarter, fed sometimes on the poorest beef of earth, on earth, and without any necessity for us being here. So he's saying, look, I'm here without money. And a lot of what Jackson did, he funded out, he wound up funding out of his own pocket on his own credit. Right. We're here without any funds, no medicine, where everyone is getting sick. It's the most unpleasant thing that we have come across, feeding on some of the poorest beef on the planet. And there's no reason for us to be here. And not only that, we have no instructions as to what we're supposed to do after this. Yeah, Jackson had been cut off from Washington. Uh, his, his orders were to go south to, uh, to New Orleans, and he kept sending letters to Washington. He never could hear... Uh, any instructions as to what he was to do. Of course, he was he was pushing the boundaries on what he was supposed to be doing anyway. Mm-hmm. So a little, little bit of this was his own his own making. Oh, he's far he, from innocent. <laughs> yeah, he he had gotten his men in this in this position, but I think this is really one of the lowest points in Andrew Jackson's life because his ambition has led him to this point where he's got two thousand essentially young boys, sons of his neighbors, five hundred miles from home. And he's trapped. He doesn't have the food. He doesn't have the medicine. They're beginning to get sick. They're beginning to die. There's a, there's a death about every day. And he's led them into this trap. And he doesn't have any way to get them out that, that anyone can see. So this is a point where he makes a decision, right? Because he yeah. eventually turns around and marches back to Tennessee. Yeah. And, and he gets, and I think the kind of the, the climax of this is when he gets an order uh, from Wilkinson. He opens it up, and supposedly it contains an order from the Secretary of War telling him that he's dismissed from service. Mm, yes. And that, he, and that he's essentially to abandon these boys uh, 500 miles from home, and he's to turn over every piece of equipment that he's brought with him to Wilkinson, his enemy. And, and Jackson has to make a decision. And the decision is whether he will obey this order and allow these young boys to die that's what he says will happen to them. They, these are poor common boys. They, they don't have the funds to get back home. Mm-hmm. Or disobey this order, which presumably came from the president. And his officer said, if you disobey this order, you'll face a firing squad. That's the decision he had to make. And so that, that's why I say it's, 
He had to choose whether to risk everything he worked for his whole life, the future of his family, the well-being of his family, not just for himself, but for all of these Tennessee boys. Mm. And that's the decision he made, you know, was, was essentially to commit mutiny if necessary. And Jackson said, in the United States, the people are in charge. And he said, I will take my case to the people. And I think they will see, you know, how, uh, what, what a terrible decision this is. And uh, they will come to my defense. Right. So this, this is a, I'm going to read again from the book. This is, this is really the turning point for Jackson. Jackson had tried to play within the accepted rules of the establishment bureaucracy. And this was the result. Wilkinson and his political cohorts in the War Department were trying to use those rules to destroy Jackson. Worse, they were willing to waste the lives of hundreds of poor Tennessee men just to maintain their own power. It would not stand. He turned loose the frontier fighter Jackson. He he turned loose the frontier fighter Jackson that had been restrained by Overton's advice since his duel with Dickinson. Wilkinson could could have calculated that Jackson housed in a cold tent 450 miles from home, sickened and weakened from near pneumonia, removed from his base of political support, forced to watch men in his protection die from disease and hunger, ordered by the Secretary of War to turn over all of his equipment, arms, and even his troops' tents to his political enemy, and then faced with a remaining life of public humiliation and financial ruin if he lived to return home, would finally accept the defeat and surrender. But Wilkinson had failed to calculate that Andrew Jackson, the quitter, did not exist. Jackson would not stay throwed. <laughs> this attack went to the heart of Jackson's concept of his own identity, both as a general and, as a, and a, as a protector of his extended family. If Jackson allowed Wilkinson to prevail, he would not only have failed to command a battle, he would have abandoned the poor and sick soldiers to die. No doubt Jackson had publicly criticized Wilkinson's incompetence that led to the death of hundreds of soldiers under his command. Wilkinson's revenge would now give Jackson the same reputation. Until this point, Jackson had sought his purpose in business, gambling, law, and politics, but he had failed at business and had quickly given up on other pursuits when he did not find his purpose in them. And though Andrew Jackson had always fought back, no matter the enemy, often he fought as the boy who had lacked a father's guidance to mature into a, into a man. Like a teenage orphan trying to survive, Jackson had fought only for himself and his friends. Not only did Jackson's command suddenly have a purpose, to save himself and his military family, he had discovered a mission greater than himself. Jackson had not only been born a political aristocrat, Jackson had not been born a political aristocrat. However, from this point forward, he would not fear taking on any Eastern politician, even the President of the United States, on his own level for the common citizen who could not fight for himself. Jackson would balance his attempts at political savvy with his no-holds-barred frontier-style grit. In the pain of an agonizing decision in his cold tent on, a, on the Natchez Trace, a new Andrew Jackson was born. The mightiest human winds had shaken him to his firm core. Though his soldiers had not yet given the roughest hickory general the name, in making the decision to fight back against Wilkinson and aristocratic bureaucrats from Tennessee volunteers, bureaucrats for Tennessee volunteers who were being neglected and abused by their government. All Jackson's life's earned characteristics surfaced in a reconstituted new man, a more focused and mature man, and even 
tougher, hardened, and seasoned man, a man who is being reborn as Old Hickory. Now, we're at the point where Jackson has decided that he has this order that he's been relieved from duty, right? Right. Maybe from the president, maybe a forgery, um, but regardless of who it came from, he's not going to follow it. He's he has he has determined that in disregarding self and regarding others more highly than regarding the well being of others more so than you do yourself, that is now his mission. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and his biographer, um, one of his biographers followed up on this and talked about when Jackson got this order, he looked out at his camp and saw these young boys who were sick. And he said these boys looked at Jackson with tears in their eyes, reminded him that he had promised to be a father to them, and begged him not to abandon them. And that's the only time that I have read that Andrew Jackson also shed tears. Yes. When he thought that his decisions would lead to the death of these boys who he now considered his family and, and loyal to. And I think that that changed Jackson when he decided he would, he would risk everything for these young boys. And so what happens on the way home? Because a lot of the journey on the way home was, and, and even uh, I think if I read correctly, even before that was funded out of Jackson's own pockets. Yeah. He, he turned to friends in Natchez that he knew was able to buy a borrow small amount of funds for medicines to for the men and a little bit of provisions for food. Some of the men were given provisions by the, the army quartermasters. They refused to provide funds for the cal- food for the cavalry. But he set up off the, Nat- up the Natchez Trace, and his plan was to send an express rider ahead to the Tennessee governor, telling him what was going on, asking him to come to their rescue down the Natchez Trace and meet them at the Tennessee River. So he sets the rider off. He, he goes out of Natch- Natchez, uh, essentially stealing 11 baggage wagons from the army to the sick boys to ride in. Yeah. They hadn't gotten more than six miles up that a lot more boys start to get sick. And they realize they don't even have enough wagons for all of the young men who can't walk. And Jackson refuses to leave even one boy behind uh, to die there in Natchez. And they realize that they will need all the horses that they have for the sick boys to ride. In. Jackson has three horses himself. So at that point, he dismounts his own horse and he walks every step up the Natchez Trace with his soldiers uh, back back to the Tennessee River. And one of the sol- one of the journals I found from the soldiers said that some days they walked in mud up to their ankles. Some days they walked in water up to their waist for miles. Uh, and it's, it's late winter, and Jackson is considered an old man at the time. And some of the boys watch him, and, and they realize, number one, this is the man who has refused to abandon us uh, when it would have done him well to do so. Uh, he stood up for us, even against the president of the United States. We'll be loyal to him. But, but secondly, here here we are following him, and, and he's taking every step on this, this journey that we are. He's going through the same difficulties we are. Mm. And that really began to earn the loyalty of these boys that, that Jackson had not been able to, to win through battle because he had never had the battles before. And so it, that helped make him the general that he became. But as they were on one of these one of these uh, journeys through swamps one day, one of the boys looked at Jackson and they said, look at that old man. That man's tough. And then one of the boys said, that man's as tough as Hickory. And finally they began calling him old Hickory. And rather than criticizing the boys, you know, Jackson took it as a badge of honor. And he realized this might be the only, uh, 
medal that, of, of any kind that he got for this whole disaster mm. of an expedition. And so the, the fact that the boys thought enough of him to think of him as Old Hickory uh, kind of gave Jackson some encouragement to press on. They got about halfway uh, up the Natchez Trace. They were met with a, a post rider with a letter from one of Jackson's officers in Nashville with word from the governor that the governor decided he had no authority to provide any provisions for Jackson and his troops. And Jackson immediately suspected that Wilkinson, his enemy, had somehow gotten to his best friend, the governor, and uh, and he worried because he's coming back up the Natchez Trace, essentially committing mutiny. He's borrowed all of this money that he doesn't have to feed these boys for transportation, and he doesn't know what he's going to face when he gets back to Nashville, that, that maybe he'll face uh, angry families of having taken their sons away, some of the sons having died. It may all be over. He may go to the poorhouse, and ultimately he may face a firing squad. Uh, but he presses on because he has to get these boys back home to save them. What happens along the way? Um, because the Indians, again, play a pivotal role in helping Jackson. Uh, there was one spot along the way that uh, I think really lifted the spirits of the men. Yeah, they uh, they turned to their their friends, the, the Colbert family and, and the Chickasaw Nation particularly, uh, because they've they've run out of food and they've, they've used up a lot of the provisions coming down the Natchez Trace. And, and they turn to the, the Indians, and the Indians see the, their plight, and they decide that they're going to help feed these boys uh, and help them survive on the way back. Yeah, so all along the way, when provisions were supposed to be there, they weren't. Right? Right. And it's just right. one disappointment and let down after another. And finally, the Colbert family, Chickasaw Nation, comes through. And I think a couple of the, the guys who were really sick, uh, they rode ahead and dropped those guys off. Right to be mm-hmm. to be treated, right. and they find they arrived and find out they had actually survived. Um, and so what happens? What happens when Jackson gets back to Tennessee? It's really again, it's a low point in Jackson's life. You can imagine this: when the boys left, they described this grand ceremony they held with the cannons booming, uh, the flags flying. Jackson's promised them all they're going to come home as conquering heroes, and now here they are coming back in ragged tatters of uniforms, their, their shoes have worn out. Uh, most of them have just barely survived to get back. They're emaciated from the lack of food. They're, they're far from the conquering heroes. And one of the biographers writes that there was a quote unquote, pleasant little ceremonial on the public square where Jackson dismisses his troops. And Jackson had a lot of enemies in Tennessee at the time. So he's, he's looking out of the audience, he's facing his enemies. And that very morning, the Nashville newspaper has reported that his enemy Wilkinson has just taken Mobile. That's the mission that Jackson was going down to, to take on. And now he's even been denied that. And you can really sense in Jackson, this is the one time in his life when he is subdued. He just doesn't know what to say because it looks as if he's, he's getting ready to be crushed you know, by everything that has gone on. And the governor is there, totally oblivious to what's, what's gone on. And Hans Jackson, this flag, sewn by the ladies of Knoxville as a victory flag over the British, mm-hmm. and presents it to him nevertheless. And as he hands it to him, he says, and when you accept this flag, you should, you should know that on every occasion, you can count on the support of your state. Um, and so when I give a talk about this, I often say the fact that Jackson didn't take out his pistol and shoot the governor right there <laughs> <laughs> shows how much he had been changed by this expedition. 
um, because it was a low point. And so he, he didn't know how all of this was going to turn out. Um, what they didn't realize, and I think this is kind of the upshot from the, the military history, was that Jackson had never commanded a battle. He had never won the loyalty of troops as, as a battle general. Mm-hmm. And most of these boys had never been soldiers. They had had some militia training at home, but never really as soldiers. They were green recruits. But this whole expedition had hardened them into soldiers. They learned to take commands. And Jackson had been hardened into a general. And so just a few months later, word, word came to Nashville that the Creek Indians had attacked Fort Mims and killed, massacred 500 families. And Jackson asked these same boys to show up again and follow him into the Creek Nation. And they did because he had refused to abandon them. But when they showed up this time, they were no longer green recruits. They were soldiers. Right. And Jackson was their general, and they were loyal to him. And that was the same group, many of them, that went on to New Orleans and defeated the British. I, I, I wonder whether Jackson would have had the same victory at New Orleans if he had not first had this first experience that seemed a total disaster at the time that actually just prepared Jackson and his men, you know, for victory later on. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, you know, so many times you, you look back at the way you thought something was going to go and it didn't go the way. And you're like, God, why, you know, we were just talking about this. Um, me and a couple of guys that I hunt with, it's like so many times you wonder why things go the way they go. Uh, and then, and then you step back and realize God's providence and he is omnipresent. He's in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future. And the book of Romans says, we know that all things work for our good, for those that love God. And I believe you're right. Uh, There's no way you take these same group of kids, um, who weren't hardened by that trace expedition put them in the battle in New Orleans and have the results that Jackson had um, without them going through that, what you described as a crucible, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't think the outcome is the same. Yeah. And I think lesser men definitely would have given up Mm. at several points along the way. And certainly when Jackson came back, uh, a lot of people would have just resigned and said, well, that's it. That's, that's that's the end of it. Right. But Jackson never, never doubted, uh, his his mission in life, uh, he never doubted his purpose, uh, and he refused to give up, and that made all the difference. So I know people that are listening want to know what was the what became of Wilkinson. <laughs> Actually, Jackson, I think, was able to defeat Wilkinson without firing a shot. He didn't have to pull out the dueling pistols. Right before he left Nashville, going down to Natchez, he wrote a letter to the Secretary of War stating that Wilkinson was so despised that most of the troops would refuse to serve under him. And the Secretary of War received that, wrote on the back that he would consider it, and in fact he did. So just after Jackson got this letter from Wilkinson that probably was a forgery, Wilkinson also received a letter from the Secretary of War that essentially he was acting on Jackson. He didn't say this, but he was acting on Jackson's advice, and he moved Wilkinson to the Northern Front. And Wilkinson refused to go for several months because he knew he could look the part of a general, uh, but he couldn't fight. He couldn't command. Mm -hmm. And when he went to the Northern Front, uh, his his leadership was a disaster. Every time they told him he was going into battle, he would go to bed with stomach ailments. 
and uh, it, was, it was a terrible disaster, the battle across their fields. Several men were lost. And so after, after the War of 1812, Wilkinson was finally dismissed as a general. And he moved to Mexico, which was then still under Spanish control, and he continued to try to use his military intelligence for money. But by that point, it wasn't, uh, wasn't very valuable, and uh, he died in poverty there in, in Mexico in what was essentially a foreign, foreign nation. But he lived long enough to know that Jackson uh, was awarded his position as commander, the general in command of the U.S. Southern Command. And he lived long enough to know that uh, Andrew Jackson was the one who successfully defended New Orleans against the British and became a national hero. Hmm. So I think Jackson probably took some satisfaction. Oh, I imagine he had to take a bunch. <laughs> and and eventually he he was compared to Washington as as the the hero of the Battle of New Orleans, um, seventh president of the United States, and and I think now we know a great deal more about what formed the man that we now know as Old Hickory. Yeah. Until the Civil War, the date of Jackson's victory over the British, July or January 8th, was celebrated second only to the 4th of July as a national holiday. So they considered that America's second war of independence. They considered Jackson uh, the next General George Washington, and he finally, he finally got what he always wanted. Hmm. That seems like a pretty good place to 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 wrap. Is there anything? Uh, there's so many things that we can learn from this book and learn from just learning from history. Um, you know, we learned that when you pull yourself out of take take self out of the equation and consider the benefit of others, you truly realize your life mission. And and that's really what this podcast is about. That's what our ministry is about. It's really what this book was about. Um, and you find those lessons in some of the strangest places. I, I mean, I, I had no idea of this story. And Tony, literally, I read this book in two settings. I mean, it's there's, you know, minus footnotes, there's, you know, 400 pages, um, over 400 pages. And I literally couldn't put it down. Um, there's just there's so much rich history there. And I look, you and I touched on a very small part of this book. There's so many other characters that weave their way in and out of the story. Um, but we really can learn from history because history does indeed repeat itself. And human nature doesn't change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I've. You're right. I, I actually thought that, you know, while we're describing people who would put men in harm's way to protect or or gain power, that's that's no different than today. Um, yeah. People who have life-changing experiences and transformations where they have this epiphany of why they're finally, finally why they're here on the planet and what their mission is and what their bigger position is, that happens all throughout history happens even today. Human nature is human nature, but history repeats itself. And we can learn an awful lot from history um, if we take the uh, if we take the time to study it. Is there anything you wanted to add to our discussion? Because I, I think we've we've gone deep enough and we've gone wide yeah. enough to give um, 
readers uh, a, a pretty good idea of what's going on in this book. Yeah, I think just one final discovery that I found that I, I didn't put in the book because I discovered it later on. Um, there's so much discussion now about Andrew Jackson being some kind of genocidal maniac. What I discovered was that a lot of the American Indian leaders of Jackson's day named their sons Andrew Jackson. Mm-hmm. And that was even true after the, the removal. And why would American Indian leaders name their sons Andrew Jackson as a badge of respect if they thought he was a genocidal maniac? They didn't. They must have respected him. Right. And as I said, when we began, you know, people are complex. History is complex. So I think it's worth another look at Andrew Jackson's life to see what lessons we can learn from what he faced and how he overcame those obstacles. Yeah, I think there's a big... Uh, push right now to rewrite certain parts of history for political expediency or to, or to define a different narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, there are certainly parts of our history that are dark. I mean, no, no doubt about it, but there are also many, many, many more parts of our history that as Reagan put it, we are that shining city on a hill and we, we shouldn't rewrite that. Uh, the data is there. The facts are there. Um, go out and 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 get them, but but don't fall into this. Seems like a big push to rewrite or, or skip over parts of history to def- to form and define a different narrative. And that's such a dangerous, such a dangerous thing and precedent to be setting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's risky, and I think. I think what I found in writing this was, you know, heroes are not heroes because they're perfect people Mm-mm. or because they were always destined for a certain thing. They're, they're often heroes despite their own human flaws. And sometimes it's attempt to, to overcome those human flaws that they're the ones who are willing to do heroic things despite themselves. Yes. And despite their frailties. Well, and as you go through scripture, you know, King David is listed as, as labeled as a, a man after God's own heart, and he was far from perfect. Um, if you read the life of, of David and just the, the boneheaded, stupid things that he did, but he always turned back to, to pursuing what, what God put him on, on earth to do. And that was, you know, to, to be a man after God's own heart. And despite himself, as you just said, despite his flaws, despite his character flaws and the, and the, you know, the, the things that you really shouldn't. He, he emerged as a, a great leader, same as Jackson, despite his hot-headedness and his, uh, you know, just his willingness to achieve his ambitious goals at any cost. He has this life epiphany that, you know, really redefines his mission. So, again, man, I, I thank you so much, Tony, for spending so much time with us today. The book is Hardened to Hickory. Um, where can people get it, number one? It's available online, Amazon, as well as others, and at some select bookstores. Okay, okay. You got anything else coming out soon? Has has this has this kind of spawned the writer and in, in Tony Turnbow? It has. It has. <laughs> A friend of mine suggested that I um, try take some of these stories that I've learned about the Natchez Trace and try to appeal to younger readers. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on a historical fiction about some kids coming with their families down the Natchez Trace and encountering. Uh, a lot of its hazards and how they're changed by this. I'm working on that now. And then in, in, on the nonfiction, I've been working for quite a while on a book about the death of Mary Lewis. Mm. 
uh, and whether it was suicide or murder. Hmm. Well, will you will you keep me posted on the progress sure. of those? Because I would love to get my hands on those, and I would love to have you back on the podcast discussing those. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Man, again, thank you so much, Tony. I, I have enjoyed uh, our time today immensely. The book is Hardened to Hickory. If you guys have just a uh, just a budding interest in history like I do, or if you've been interested in history forever, this I guarantee you this story is something that we weren't taught in school because um, we didn't have a history teacher like Tony. Um and even if we were, we just kind of glanced at, we, we, we scanned over that to get to the battle of new Orleans, which is where Jackson is really known, but you guys got to get this book hardened to Hickory by Tony Turbo. Tony, thank you again, brother. Have a great day. Thank you, George. Thank you very much, Tony, for not only joining us today, but also sharing your passion for history, for Southern history and all we can learn by studying it. I am certainly looking forward to your next books and we'll definitely have you back on when you release those. Again, thank you so much for your effort in uncovering what I think many Americans did not know. And and thank you for preserving that history. Um, can't wait to have you back on. We'd like to also thank Edge, Duck Boats, Tahatsu Outboards, Rite Shotguns, Apex Ammunition, Sitka Gear, and our newest sponsor, our newest Passion of Pursuit sponsor, Traeger Grills, for supporting Passion of Pursuit and Revelation Outdoors Waterfowl Ministry. Without the help of these companies, we could not do what we do. So I humbly ask you, our listening audience, to support the companies that support us. We appreciate it. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Leave us a five-star rating wherever you listen. It helps us continue to keep climbing up the rankings. And if you wouldn't mind, please share the show with a friend or a hunting buddy. We really appreciate that, too. Uh, we are still up in the top 10 waterfowl podcast in the nation. So your help is and support is showing. Uh, on Feedspot, we were ranked in the, up above the, the top 10 waterfowl podcast within the interwebs. So again, thank you all so much. Keep on listening. Keep on sharing. We love you. That's all the time we have. And until next episode, bye-bye, y'all. Yeah.